Today on Ag News Daily. Well, keep in mind that it's a futures market, so it tends to trade things ahead of when we actually know it. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is so good to be back on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined today by Jennifer Holiday. Jennifer, how did it go last week hosting with Santa? Did you guys have a good time? I'm glad you didn't uh, replace me. <laughs> it went great. Tanner and I had a good time. I got to learn a lot about keeping up with the news every day last week. And how was Argentina? Argentina was awesome. So I, I just want to take a couple minutes and kind of share with our listeners some of the takeaways that I had high level from the trip. And so we were there with Global Farmer Network. They're a nonprofit farming organization out of Des Moines started back in 2000. And really the goal of the organization is to connect farmers worldwide. So we were in Argentina. This was kind of an, a special inaugural event where we brought new members into the organization. So we had about 10 new farmers that joined officially and went through training and sessions and stuff of that nature last week. But then we also brought about 60 members from all over the globe to join us in some of these high level discussions. And so there were about 25 different countries of farmers represented from, you know, smallholder farmers who have, you know, 10 hectares that are farming fruits and vegetables to farms that are huge, 80,000 hectares of you know, was one of the Brazilian farmers, for example. So it's just a really interesting myriad of farmers all doing things super different, but still facing a lot of the same challenges, Jennifer. I mean, a lot of the conversations that are had during the week really revolve around a lot of the same issues. You know, everyone is having issues still with labor and supply chain issues from COVID and the war and all farmers have weather challenges in their own respects and sustainability challenges and consumer challenges. So it's just really interesting to get to hear from each of them, those challenges and opportunities that they're facing and how they're kind of going about addressing them. But we also got to tour a few Argentinian farms and let me tell you, things are looking really dry. But I mean, I think I want to dig in a little bit more to the dryness going on in Argentina because it's funny. I was reading a story this morning that said Argentina was supposed to receive rain over the weekend. And I was thinking, oh, well, I was there and it didn't receive any rain. But that's kind of been been the big headline, of course, here for the commodity markets is just how dry it is in Argentina. And so, like I said, we got to see quite a few different farms. We were in the Rosario, Buenos Aires area. And that's a fairly large soybean production area. And things are looking really dry. I had farmers that, you know, were picking up the soil, they were digging in the dirt, they were feeling it and smelling it and tasting it, which was a new one for me. But all in all, things are looking really dry. And there's a big question mark right now about what's going to happen then from a production standpoint for Argentina, but also from a livestock production standpoint. That was something that I hadn't really considered, but a lot of the Argentinian farmers were sharing with me that they likely won't source soybeans from elsewhere, even though they are the world's largest soy or third largest soy crusher, they'll likely just scale back production. And so I think that's kind of the other side of the coin here that we haven't really seen flipped yet is just what happens for um, a soy crushing processing capacity facility, but then also 
because of that, do we see a livestock production scale down a little bit in Argentina because they won't have quite as much soy crushing online? So just some new things that I hadn't really considered before I left for Argentina, but was certainly really interesting to see in person. And we also got to see the Rosario Grand Exchange, which is like the place to be if you are shipping commodities out of Argentina. So I don't know. All in law, it was just really interesting. I'm probably going to do a Twitter thread on my personal Twitter sometime this week or later this week with just kind of my high level thoughts. But yeah, I just wanted to share that with with our with our listeners today. Wow, that is so interesting. I'm actually so jealous because I have grown to love learning about South America in general and all of the agriculture that occurs down there. Yes, it's just so different um, infrastructure wise, but just so interesting. So thanks for indulging me for a few minutes. (laughs) Absolutely. And I guess it's time to jump into our news for the day, right? I think it is. So, I mean, aside from heavy or lackluster rains, I should say, in Argentina. We've seen some heavy fighting continue in portions of eastern and southeastern Ukraine. This actually seems like it's been intensifying here over the past week or so and is getting to a point now where it seems like things are probably the worst that they've been since uh, the the war with Russia started. It's been almost a year. We're almost to the one year mark. That'll be February 24th officially. And the reality is, according to the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltberg, they said the reality is that we are seeing a start already to spring offensive attacks, especially as farmers in the Ukraine are also gearing up to start planting here uh, come March and April, Jennifer. So really starting to see that exacerbated in the news as far as what's going on there. Uh, But we also got word that Russian sanctions have been a barrier to the Black Sea grain deal renewal. The Black Sea grain initiative or the The Grain Corridor Initiative, as it's otherwise been termed, was signed, of course, by Russia and Ukraine last July. They also extended the agreement further 120 days in November, but it's up for renewal again next month. Russia has postured once again that they are not going to re-sign the deal because they're unhappy by Western country sanctions on a variety of products, but most importantly, their oil products. So that certainly had a little bit of an impact on the commodity markets and is just really kind of playing out here as we look at some of these bigger geopolitical events going on worldwide. Absolutely. And staying on that note of just needing to sit and see how things play out, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has declared a national state of disaster to enable an intensive response to widespread flooding that has affected seven of the country's nine provinces. Two of them have been most affected by the floods, which were brought on by heavy rainfall as a result of the La Nina weather phenomenon, according to a statement from the Office of Presidency. Invoking a National Disaster Act gives the government additional powers, including the procurement and delivery of goods and services, and the ability to bypass restrictions under current law. The National Police and Defense Force may be called on to help respond to the flooding. 
The floods have resulted in wide-ranging impact from flooded homes and vehicles to the loss of basic infrastructure. Farmers expect crop and livestock losses to continue as the government's weather service forecasts that the weather pattern will remain during the early part of 2023. President Ramaphosa declared a national state of disaster last week over South Africa's power crisis as daily rolling power cuts are paralyzing businesses. The National Disaster Act was also invoked in March of 2020 to deal with the coronavirus pandemic in last April to respond to floods in the eastern province of Kawazul Natal. So I guess now it is just time to sit and see how things play out like they had to in April last year and through the pandemic, right? Yeah, it certainly sounds that way. Jennifer, what else do you have in the news for today? I've got to tell you, I am still catching up after being gone last week. Absolutely. My next statement is on China. China will increase its efforts to boost output of soybeans and edible oils, the state media reported yesterday, citing a key rural policy document as it continues to push for greater self-sufficiency in its key food supplies. The world's top soybean buyer is trying to lower its heavy reliance on imports of the oil seed as the pandemic, growing taste tensions, and increasing climate disasters raise concerns about feeding its 1.4 billion people. In its annual rural policy blueprint, known as the number one document, the state council, China's cabinet, reiterated a recently stated goal to boost grain production capacity by 50 million tons from its current production level of 650 million tons. It will seek to raise corn yields, further support wheat wheat farmers, and vigorously promote rapeseed production, as well as lesser known oilseed crops, such as Camila State News Agency had reported. It also will speed up the commercialization of biotech, corn, and soybeans, according to the document they released. There's no time frame provided for the launch of GMO corn and soybeans, but it is expected to launch within this next year, Delaney. Yeah, camelina, I think, is the crop that you just mentioned there. That's a new one to me. It's one I've started hearing more and more about, actually, with uh, people who commonly grow wheat. I've heard this a little bit more common now coming to the forefront. I've also heard of people that have started to use it as a cover crop. So it's one that I'll be honest, I don't know a whole lot about, but it's one I've started seeing in the news and in front of farmers more and more lately. Yeah, honestly, I... I don't know a whole lot about it either, but I have started to hear the name more often. So it wasn't the first time I've seen it, but still not quite familiar with it. I'm not either, but it, it might be a good one here to to look into as far as potentially doing an interview around it as an option. So that might be something we put in our back pockets for another time. Absolutely. And what news do you happen to have today? Well, I tell you what, we also saw commodity markets rallying on some of those headlines that I mentioned there, specifically looking at, um, you know, the continued impact of the Russia-Ukraine war. But we're also looking at fertilizer outlooks and how that could impact 
commodity markets. As we head into the final stretch of February here, of course, this is also crop insurance month. And it's interesting to see markets kind of rallying at this time of year. But we've got to consider where things are at from a global input perspective. Uh, Nitrogen fertilizer wholesale prices fell really sharply in January due to lack of demand as well as lower gas prices for EU nat gas. And that really has started to kind of reset the picture here for inputs moving forward. However, when we look at the consumer, uh, when we look at farmer confidence or the farmer outlook, ag outlook uh, that Purdue University puts together, we're still seeing farmers view that largely with a grain of salt saying that, yes, it's great, these prices have come down, but are they? coming down permanently, or is it just a short-term blip? And that's one thing here that DTN does a really great job watching, but also Josh Linville over there at StoneX. So just something to keep watching here as we see how things are continuing to trend lower by all accounts, but will they stay that way? That's the big question here. Definitely. And hopping into my last story I have today The National Cotton Growers Council said its survey of growers indicated 11.4 million acres will be planted in cotton this spring, which is 17% less than last year. Growers across the cotton belt said they would shift some of their land out of cotton. Corn, wheat, and soybeans were the most frequently mentioned alternatives. Futures prices for most alternatives crops were strong for the past year, but cotton futures have fallen more than 16% since last winter. The Cotton Council survey of growers in 17 states conducted from mid-December through mid-January is closely watched as an indicator of farmers' plans for the next year. The first survey-based estimate from USDA will be the prospective plantings report on March 31st. The Cotton Council released its survey results at its annual meeting in Dallas. Cotton is one of the four most widely planted crops in the U.S. The Cotton Council estimated a U.S. cotton crop of 15.7 million bales this year, roughly 1 million bales larger than last year. American cotton mills were expected to expand production somewhat, while exports declined modestly during the 23-24 marketing year, with the result that the U.S. cotton pile would climb by 1 million bales to 5.3 million bales in summer of 2024. Yeah, and that's a really good segue here into chatting markets, Jennifer, because we chat acreage in particular with Arlen Suderman coming up here in just a moment. So in the interim, what do you say we hop over and take a look at where markets ended for today? Absolutely. Let's do it. Well, we certainly saw some positivity here on this Monday trading session to open the week. March corn opened four and a half cents higher at 6.85. Dece new crop corn put on just three quarters of a cent, closing right at the 5.96 mark. Soybeans also put on some positive momentum as the March contract closed up just a quarter of a cent at 15.44 and three quarters. November up six pennies on the day at 13. 1384 and three quarters in the hard red winter wheat contracts. They definitely pushed higher as well. May wheat up three and a half cents at $9 and a quarter cent. And as we wrap things up here with the livestock markets, April live cattle added a dollar 15 to close at a buck 65, 10 
April feeders adding 92 cents at $1.9160. And April lean hogs added $3.02 to close at $86.35. Jennifer, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with Arlen Suderman. folks for today's hashtag market monday conversation we are joined today by arlen suderman with StoneX. arlen thanks so much for joining today it's great to be back with you delaney Arlen, I feel like we need to talk kind of macroeconomics here first, because we've seen the uh, Fed raise interest rates, of course, one more time. We've seen some uh, stocks firming up, treasury yields slowing. What's going on from a macroeconomic perspective? Yeah, that's a key question because I think it's going to have a big impact this week as we move through the grain and oil seed markets, depending on how things play out. And it comes down to uh, we have inflation in this country, yes, because there were um, supply chain issues, but now the biggest problem supporting inflation is wage inflation. And you can only bring overall inflation down to the level of wage inflation, and then it will tend to flatten out there. And then if commodity prices rise again, it'll go back higher again. So that's a concern going forward. The Fed is mandated to bring inflation down to 2%. They cannot do that without bringing uh, wage inflation down to 2%. And how do you do that? The only way to do that is to bring the number of workers looking for a job equal or in balance with the number of jobs that are open. Well, the Federal Reserve doesn't have any tools in their tool chest to increase the supply of workers. So right now, there's about 5.7 million workers looking for a job in the United States. But there's 11 million job posting, which is almost posted, which is almost a record high. And so that means almost two jobs available for every worker. So that means employers are in a bidding war for the available workers, plus trying to keep the workers that they have. And so what the Fed has to do is slow down the economy enough to reduce those job postings, to discourage employers from hiring more workers, to bring them in balance. And that raises the unemployment level as well. And once you do that, then you start to bring wage inflation down. But that also tends to slow demand for commodities. And so that's the concern of the markets, both on Wall Street as well as in the commodity markets. And so we'll get some key inflation data coming out on Tuesday and on Thursday, the consumer price index on Tuesday, the producer price index, which is inflation at the wholesale level on Thursday and retail sales data on Wednesday between the two. And that'll give the markets a good idea if the Fed needs to become more aggressive or less aggressive in its current monetary policy of withdrawing stimulus from the economy as well as raising interest rates going forward. And uh, so that, too, will have a big impact because as they withdraw money, that tends to withdraw money from the commodities. Now, if it looks like inflation is starting to get out of hand again, then we tend to see more investment money coming into the commodity markets as a hedge against inflation. So there's a lot of factors that could play into the kind of the overall tone of the commodity markets as we go through this week. So Arlen, a lot to unpack there. And I've got a bit of a two-part, I guess, follow-up question for you. You said that the jobs report and the CPI and PPI index will really kind of indicate to us potentially what could happen for commodities. 
what is a factor to watch as those two reports come out to tell us really how that's going to impact the commodity markets? And second part of that question is, as money does withdraw from commodities, what kind of impact do we see from a futures perspective? Well, I answer the second part of that first is we as money comes out of the commodities, we tend to see the market manage supply and demand at lower price levels. Contrarily, if we see inflation going higher, investment funds come in want to hedge their risk against inflation by owning commodities because there's a strong correlation between inflation and the value of commodities. And so if they think inflation's coming back, they will put more money into the commodity sector and will manage supply and demand at a higher price level than what we otherwise would in the futures market. Um, so what to watch for is we get the CPI and the PPI numbers this week. The general expectation is that we'll see the year-on-year -year inflation numbers continue to inch lower. But the month-on-month -month inflation numbers will start working their way higher once again. And if we continue to do that, then those year-on-year -year numbers will eventually start increasing again as well. So if we see those month-on-month -month numbers take significant increases from where they've been of late, that'll start be a warning flag to the marketplace that inflation is starting to come back. Initially, you sometimes have a fear reaction of money moving to the sideline, but then money starts to come into the commodities to hedge against that inflation. So Arlen, as we start to dig in here a little bit about commodity markets in particular, I want to kick things off here with the soybean markets because uh, we get rain. It seems like they rally or they uh, they don't rally, I should say, and we get disappointing rainfall in South America and then and commodities rally. And I'll say I, I was just actually in Argentina last week and crops are looking pretty bad. Uh, Buenos Aires and South. So how much more premium do we have left to build into this market? And at what point do you think we see that actualized into the market? Well, keep in mind that it's a futures market. So it tends to trade things ahead of when we actually know it. And then once we know it, that's considered old news and the market moves on. So in my view, we have already priced in the short crop in Argentina. The question is, is the market's perception of that short crop more or less than reality? And that's yet to be determined. But if you look at the crop in Argentina, which some local private estimates are as low as 34 and a half million metric tons, there's a lot of parallels to the 0809 marketing season in how the growing season is shaping up and they produce 32 million metric tons that year. So that's very possible. The last half of the crop has a better opportunity to respond to rains if they come. And so far, there's not a lot of rains in the forecast in the next two weeks. But if they were to start to come as La Nina is dying, that they could respond. But we're just not seeing that happen yet. Meanwhile, to the north in Brazil, we have a massive crop being harvested now. We're just a little under 20% harvested on that crop. The yields in the center west district are very, very good. 
yields in the southern part of the country, Rio Grande do Sul, et cetera, will be smaller. That's where they've had more dry weather. They'll be smaller. Overall, we think that's a crop of at least 154 million metric tons, which would be up 27 million metric tons from a year ago. So if you look at South America as a whole, we're still seeing a dramatic increase in production, even if you use some of the lower production estimates out of Argentina. I've talked to our team in in Brazil. And I said, logistically, can you move 10 million metric tons to Argentina to the crushing plants there to keep their crushers supplied with soybeans? They said, logistically, we have several avenues we can do that and we can fulfill that need. Will it happen is the big question. But Brazil does have the soybeans to fill Argentina's void if the logistics can be worked out to do that, and that is possible to happen. So from this standpoint, I think right now we're trading the drought without really thinking about the big crop to the north. And the other factor is those soybeans in Brazil are sold on the U.S. market, so to speak, based off the Chicago market. And so we've got almost 4 billion bushels that have to be sold yet. That can also create quite a selling pressure. Most of the Argentine drought has really been factored in through the soy meal market. And so we believe that the funds, we don't know for sure because we haven't had a CFTC commitment traders report for a couple of weeks, but we believe the funds have near record large ownership of the soy meal. And if in fact they do see the capability of Brazil to supply Argentina with enough soybeans, we could see a collapse of that soy meal market Brazil farmers start to sell against that drop and we could see a collapse of this market. So that's a risk that farmers need to keep in mind that could happen here. So Arlen, as that Brazilian crop, that huge crop is coming online here. What's the story been for exports and what's your outlook for exports here moving forward? Well, we see uh, obviously Brazil is going to take more and more of the China business. If you look at the 27 million metric ton increase in production, and we think with the good yields to the north, it could actually be a little bit more than that. Uh, we shipped 30 million metric tons to China over the last year. So we could see a significant shift in that export business. And that's happening as we're building up our own domestic demand for for renewable diesel here in the United States. We're increasing our crush capacity. We need to make sure that we don't lose that export business faster than what we're able to build crush. Um, but overall, that's the shift that we're going to see here in the United States. But uh, with uh, Brazil increasing production, we anticipate that they're going to be increasing their exports considerably, probably up in that 92 to 95 million metric ton level for exports for Brazil this year. Arlen, as we look at markets here today, wheat certainly had a nice little rally here this Monday afternoon. What was pushing markets higher there? Well, we traded lower early in the session and then kind of got some strength uh, from the outs what was happening in the corn and soybean markets and ended up on a positive note. And the fundamental strength beneath this, uh, let me back up. There's a couple of factors. First of all, the funds had built 
massive short positions, especially in Chicago wheat. And that left them vulnerable if something were to scare them out of their positions because there's no natural sellers this time of year to take the opposite side of the trade if they were to try to buy those short positions back. So that, that had them nervous. Then you look at the fact that we had virtually removed all of the Ukraine war premium that we'd put in the market a year ago. And so that risk premium was absent. And the war in Ukraine is heating up. The fighting on the ground is probably about as intense as it's been at any point in the last year, let alone the missile attacks that are flying over across Ukraine, et cetera. And with more and more equipment being supplied from the West to Ukraine and, and Russia starting to gear up on a spring offensive, the risks of seeing commodities reduced coming from that area is increasing. And the market's shined is frankly saying, you know, we probably need to add some risk premium back in. And that's helping scare some of those speculative shorts out of the Chicago and Kansas City markets. Arlen, as we uh, are midway through February here, what's your outlook for crop insurance? Well, this is an interesting time for prices to be trending higher. Uh, for figuring crop insurance. Now, the new crop contracts are not trending higher like the old crop contracts are. November soybeans are, December corn is still pretty much trending kind of sideways to lower. Um, so what the market is saying is we need to give soybeans a more of a chance relative to the corn. And I think that's because there's been a big expectation that we're going to see a big shift toward corn. And so the soybean market thinks like maybe not so fast. Let's make sure we hang on enough acres. From a fundamental standpoint, I'm looking for 92 million acres of corn this year and 88.5 million acres of soybeans. That's up about 3.4 million acres of corn. That's up 1 million acres of soybeans. I'm looking for a significant reduction in cotton acres this year. And I'm also looking for a lot of the wheat acres in the central and southern plains that have been in drought areas with La Nina dying. That area is expected to get more moisture this spring. We're going to see some more corn and soybean acres in that area. And then the northern plains, I think we'll see a shift from spring wheat over to corn, especially in the Red River Valley, giving us some of the remaining growth in our corn acres. And acreage wise, Arlen, what do you think we see for the acreage battle this year? Well, corn and soybeans typically uh, have about 180 to 181 million acres combined between the two of them. We really pulled back from that this last year. I personally think that's because USDA and um, undersampled, underreported, so to speak, uh, the corn acres for this year. I think they overreported yield and underreported acreage. And I expect that to kind of get corrected, getting us back up to that 92 million acre. Uh, level for corn, soybeans up to the 88.5. That would get us at about a 180.5 million acres of corn and soybeans. Fantastic. Arlen, before I let you go, remind our folks where they can find you on social media if they want to follow along with what you're sharing. Absolutely. Stonex.com is a website, but you can follow me on Twitter at uh, my handle is Arlen, A-R-L-A-N-F-F. 101. That's Frank Frank 101. Fantastic, Arlen. Thanks again for joining today. Thank you, Delaney. 
Well, Jennifer, that does it for today's Market Monday conversation. Absolutely. It was great to hear about everything that has happened over the weekend and today in the markets. Absolutely. And I think the starting with the high level macro take there from Arlen really was helpful, at least for me and hopefully for our listeners as well, just to kind of think about where we are here mid-February as we head into key growing season. But Jennifer, I know we've got some great interviews coming up later this week. Tanner is going to be at the National Farm Machinery Show. So if anyone is floating around, be sure to say hi to him. But with that, what do you say we let the people go? Let's let them go. 